I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship with your host, Claudia Pauls. Welcome to the show. My name is Dan Moyle, one of the producers of I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, and I'm guest hosting today for Claudia Pauls. Uh, make sure you go to our website, dasismi.org, D-A-S-A-S-M-I.org, for resources if you need help in a situation. Uh, today's guest on the show is author of Taming the Lion Tamers, a book about a landmark sexual abuse case in South Carolina about a private school who had hired uh, a teacher, Eddie Fisher, who very quickly became known as someone interested in young boys and someone who was abusing young boys. And they just swept it under the rug. And years later, they were sued. Uh, the victims came out. Eddie Fisher was convicted. He pled guilty to 13 counts. Uh, but he was, they figure he abused many more than that, uh, as a serial pedophile would do. And so David was one of the attorneys involved. He and, and his colleague, and he wrote a book about it and eventually brought it to light. And last in the last couple of years here, a documentary film came out about it, an Emmy-nominated film called What Haunts Us, and then prompted by so many people asking questions about details about the case and how this could happen, prompted David to revisit his manuscript that he had created, that he had written uh, about his experience and he released it. And it's called Taming the Lion Tamers. And we have a conversation about that and about everything to do with not blaming victims, not making it their responsibility about the people who are in charge who need to be better at that. So uh, that's the conversation today. So without further ado, David Flowers. So David Flowers, thank you for joining us on I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship to talk about this incredible landmark case about your experience and about everything to do with with sexual abuse. Uh, So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, David, you wrote a book called Taming the Lion Tamers, and it's uh, your experience on this huge case uh, back several years ago. Now, some people, though, may not recognize the case, so let's talk a little bit about that. Um, tell me about this court case and, and what happened with these boys. Okay. There is a private school in Charleston, South Carolina, that is uh, well known for its academics, placing kids in Ivy League schools and that sort of thing, and it's the the school in Charleston where all the uh, people who are somebody want their children to go. In 1972, they hired a teacher in his first semester there. His name is Eddie Fisher. Uh, he approached a young boy and made a sexual proposition to him. The parents of that boy alerted the administrators at the school. The administrators did nothing to interfere with Fisher's access to children. He then went on to molest boys at that school for about 10 years. 
approximately 40 boys at that school. In 1982, a different set of parents came to him and said, this is what this guy did to our son. And they said, don't worry, we'll take care of it. And what they did to take care of it was to allow him to resign quietly. And they then recommended him for employment at other schools in Charleston, where he went on to molest children for another 15 years. Mm. Um, the hero of the story is a young man named Gary Glover, who tried and tried and tried to go to the school to get them to help him get Fisher out of teaching. And they rebuffed him every single time he tried. So he went and found a lawyer, a lawyer named Greg Myers, a friend and colleague of mine. Uh, and Greg got me involved in the case. We ended up bringing several lawsuits against the school. And there were a series of trials. And in the sort of ultimate trial, uh, a jury awarded $105 million to the father of a victim, which is a very unique aspect of this case. So, gosh, there's so much to unpack here. Why, <laughs> why would a school not protect its children and these victims? You know, it, it's a question that I have not been able to even comprehend for going on 20 years now. This case was filed in 1998. At one point in the litigation, this school actually argued that they have no legal duty to provide a safe environment for children. Maybe the most outrageous thing I ever heard in my legal career, but wow. they actually made that argument to the court in an attempt to avoid responsibility. They then went on to blame the victims for their own molestation. They even went so far as to try to have Gary Glover and Greg Myers, the hero and the hero's attorney, arrested for extortion. And fortunately, the local prosecutor said, no, we're not charging these guys with a crime, but that's how far this school went to protect its reputation. They didn't want anybody to think they actually had a pedophile on their staff, mm. but they knew they had a pedophile on their staff. And by the time the litigation came around, the guys who were in charge from 72 to 82, they were no longer there. Two gentlemen named Berkeley Grimble, well, I shouldn't say gentlemen, two men named Berkeley Grimble and James Bishop Alexander, they were no longer at the school, but the new administration continued to cover up. And that's who actually rebuffed Gary and turned him away on a number of occasions. Um, and then when we finally filed the litigation, uh, they took the same tact. They issued a press release that was absolutely full of lies, said we didn't know anything about this teacher, which was a lie. Um, and, and so it just continued. And it continued right up until last year. There was a documentary film made about this case called What Haunts Us, made by a, an alum of the school, Paige Tolmack. And when that documentary film was released in Charleston, the current administration of the school continued to lie about the truth about what happened to this. And the current uh, headmaster of the school actually started spreading a, a vile lie about one of the heroes of this story. And frankly, that was the catalyst that made me finally publish this book. I wrote this manuscript 15 years ago, shortly after these events occurred. And I was so angered by the way the school reacted towards the victims when the film came out last year that I decided to go ahead and just tell the public what the truth really is about this case. So this sounds like a scary uh, cautionary tale against victims to just keep your mouth shut and don't worry about it. But, but you don't believe that. This, is, this was, for a long time, your job. Uh, to be that advocate for people. What do you tell those victims 
now that well, what have you told those victims over the years to help them not keep it quiet, whether it's the school or whether it's another situation, like how do you handle that? Um, it's difficult as I'm sure, you know, and I'm sure your, your listeners know the courage it takes to come forward and, and make a public claim, especially against, against an institution that has the reputation of this school or a church you might have attended your entire life. It really is sort of um, earth shaking under your feet because many times the school or the church is all you've known. It was a place of solace. It was, it was where all your friends go. And to muster the courage to take on something like that and to take on usually a well-respected teacher or priest um, is a very, very difficult thing to do. But what I tried to do was one of the reasons I do these cases is this happened to me when I was a teenager. It was a medical doctor that did me and for about three years. And what I tried to impress upon my clients was you're not going to do this alone. Um, and I would, I, I did more than a lot of other lawyers did. I'm not like most lawyers. I'm no longer a lawyer, but even when I was practicing law, I tried to do it differently. Um, and Greg Myers and I actually tried these cases very differently than other lawyers do. And, and I think that, um, is what led to the success that we had in a number of cases. So is that maybe part of why you went into this field of advocating for victims is because of your experience? You know, it's a great question and, and a weird answer. Um, I actually went into the to the field of representing victims because of an intellectual pursuit of mine. I've always been fascinated by the separation of church and state. And I know that the Roman Catholic Church in America takes the position that courts don't have authority over the way they run their church. Even when children are molested, they say it's our business for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in some instances, even sort of defy courts, saying we are our own boss. And so that separation of church and state issue is what drew me to these cases initially. But then once I got involved in them, um, I, I felt there was something else going on in me. And because I had walked in these victim's shoes, I knew that I could present these cases differently than other lawyers. And at some point, in, in that 20 year legal career that I had, it transformed from being an, an intellectual pursuit to sort of a calling or a mission. And that's what it became. And interestingly, to this day, I stopped practicing law uh, in 2011, uh, actually just this year resigned from the bar. So I'm no longer a lawyer at all. But what I was getting to is I have never written a brief about the separation of church and state. Hmm. I never had the opportunity to do it. And that's what I got into this field to do. Interesting. So, Dave, what what happened to Eddie? You know, you went in and you had to fight, and the school obviously did their part to discredit everyone. What ended up happening to the perpetrator? The perpetrator eventually, well, what happened was, an interesting part of the story is uh, Greg Myers, uh, who was the first lawyer representing Gary Glover, Greg sat Gary down, and rather than have Gary tell his story five or six times, which all victims will be familiar with, that's usually what happens. First, you talk to a therapist, then you talk to an investigator, then you talk to the prosecutor, and then you tell your story in court. Greg tried to shortcut that, and what he did was he brought Gary into his office and brought a court reporter in and had him sworn to tell the truth and then had him give a lengthy statement under oath. And in conjunction with that, 
he put together a list of 42 names that he knew were victims of this particular perpetrator. And that's what they then took to the solicitor's office. We call them solicitors in South Carolina, the prosecutor's office or district attorney's office. And with that information, the prosecutor decided to bring charges, but they could only bring charges on behalf of victims that would come forward. Hmm. And in the end, in the criminal proceeding, there were 13 victims that brought criminal charges and he ended up pleading guilty in 1999 to molesting 13 different boys actually pled guilty to 12 and then entered what's called an Alford plea, which is sort of a guilty light, um, kind of sentence. Yeah. I found that. Um, it's as if, yeah. It's a, it, it essentially what it boils down to and it's a way for courts to preserve resources, if you will. If a person says, I, I maintain my innocence, but I agree that if I go through a trial, the jury will convict me. It's a way for the court to say, okay, we'll let you put yourself before the court. You can maintain your innocence, but we're going to sentence you as if you were guilty. It's called Alford. It's an Alford plea. Mm -hmm. And it actually can be um, quite useful at times, especially in sex offender cases. Um, where they can try to maintain their innocence, but they know they're going to be convicted. It's a way for a court to, to um, avoid a trial is what yeah. it is. So he pled guilty to 13. Uh, there was a very emotional hearing, which is how I opened the book, yeah. um, where all 13 either spoke or were spoken for or wrote letters to the court. Um, and it's pretty, pretty gut-wrenching stuff. And the judge was so moved by the victim's testimony when he came back from taking a break, we think he took a break just so he could calm down. He was so angry at what he was hearing. But he said to Eddie Fisher's lawyer, the perpetrator's lawyer, he said, Mr. Lofton, I don't believe in my entire career at the venture bar I ever saw a worse case. And he then proceeded to give Eddie Fisher the maximum sentence on every one of the 13 charges he was facing. And that was a pretty monumental day for these victims because they believed, first of all, that he might not go to prison because he was 72 years old when he was sentenced, 71 or 72. Um, and there had been a string of Catholic priests in Charleston who had all pled guilty to molesting children and not a single one of them ever spent a day in jail. Mm. And so we prepared our clients that he might not go to prison. And when they heard him get the maximum sentence on every single charge, it was quite an emotional moment for them. And frankly, for me too, it was the first time I'd seen anything like that. Yeah, I can. I can't even imagine. I say I can only. I, but I can't even imagine. How how do you prepare victims for that? I mean, gosh, that they want that justice, but we, we might not get it. How do you even begin to prepare a victim for that? It's That's tough. You know, you try to prepare them for the worst, but the reality is, and it's getting better. But when I first started doing these cases back in the early '90s, it was not uncommon at all for perpetrators to walk out of court. Mm -hmm. either with uh, probation or with a suspended sentence or something else. And I try to deal with that up front with whoever I represented to let them know there's probably not going to be a perfect result. There's never going to be a perfect result in one of these cases, but we'll do the best we can. And, and the way I try to present it to them is I don't want you to come out the other end of this wishing you had done this or that. I want you to do, I want you to be able to lay your head down at the end of the day and for the rest of your life, knowing you did everything you could. Mm 
because most victims, th their prime motivation is not really retribution. It's to try to prevent it from ever happening again. Mm -hmm. And so all they can do, the most that they can do is sort of put themselves out there and rely on the justice system to maybe do what it can to prevent this from happening again. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so Dave, what was your role in this case and in other civil litigation cases on behalf of victims? Because it wasn't like you weren't the prosecutor, or the solicitor in, in your state. You had a different role. What was, what was that? Well, first of all, I would generally sort of hold the hand, if you will, of the victim through the criminal proceeding. Most states have a Crime Victims Bill of Rights that guarantees victims certain um, opportunities to be heard, certain notifications of hearings, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. But too often prosecutors all over the country don't pay attention to those rights. They will enter into a plea agreement with a defendant and never tell the victim about it. And so there's a growing movement in the United States where victims have their own lawyers in the criminal proceeding. I did a good bit of that, but then usually once the criminal proceeding was over, then what I started focusing on was, and, and it's why I titled the book that I did, you know, pedophiles, sexual offenders, sexual perpetrators are like a wild animal. They're doing what comes naturally to them, like a lion in a circus. And if you take your child to the circus and the lion gets loose and mauls your child, the lion is doing what comes natural to it. And so you, when you look to see who's responsible for this, it's the people who are supposed to keep that lion in a cage or on a chain or on a leash to, to prevent him from molesting your child. And so what we started doing was focusing on the enablers, the supporters, the organizations that would hire these people, often knowing that they had a sexual interest in children, or at least knowing while they were employed and continuing to employ them. And, and so last year at one of the screenings of this film, I had an epiphany and it occurred to me that for the last 40 years, We've been telling children, your body, your choice. And we've all done it. And that's where all the resources have been poured into to prevention. But it occurred to me at one of these screenings that we're putting all the responsibility on the kids. And, and, and that's simply not right. What we should be doing as, as adults in this society is doing more to prevent it from happening. What we're doing now, or what we've been doing all these years, is trying to build the house back up after it's been burned to the ground. We're, we're reacting instead of being proactive. And what I think we need to do is start putting principals, bishops, superintendents in jail, because almost every state has a mandatory reporting statute, but nobody's ever prosecuted if they don't turn in information that they have. And so if we start doing that, we'll start changing the game. And so to get back to your question, I'm sorry, I want a little bit of field, but Civil juries are one of the best vehicles to affect social change. I believe that to the core of my being. And, and Porter Gout is a great example. The, two, the headmaster and the principal were not criminally prosecuted, but we used the civil courts to bring an action against the school and against these individuals to show the world what they did and hold them accountable for it. Um, and that's the benefit of bringing a civil action. Oftentimes, especially if there's a plea agreement in the criminal case, you never really find out what the truth was. 
you never find out much at all except, okay, he's going to plead and the plea is accepted. A civil action, you're allowed to do a lot of discovery, take depositions, get documents, and show really what the truth behind the story is. <sighs> Man, and, and I, like seriously, this is such a, you know, at domestic and sexual abuse services, we, we talk about it's, it's not the victim's fault. And yet here we are, like you just said, we're putting the responsibility on them. Not saying it's their fault, but putting the responsibility on them. But in reality, and even in like domestic violence situations, we say, why does the victim go back? Why did she stay? Why did he take her back? Whatever. And like, what, let's look at the perpetrator and let's look at those who are responsible for the, to when they, when you know something, you have to speak up. It's such, there's so much there. Um, Dave, what has happened to the Porter God school? Have they put things in place, methods, screening methods or anything else in place to make sure this doesn't happen again? Is well, the school still even open. Like this seems to me like, it, like shut it down and, and start over. That, well, uh, you, that's what sane people think they should have done. Well, Porter Gow did the day after this huge verdict was they went on a uh, public relations uh, campaign to assure people that their fundraising and their applications were not affected by this. And they even portrayed themselves as victims. The school was a victim. Um, and so what they decided to do was sue their insurance company for damaging their reputation. And in that lawsuit where they sued their insurance company, they disclosed the names of victims that they had agreed to keep confidential. They put them in a public filing. They disclosed the amount of money that the victims received in a confidential settlement. They put that in a public filing. Um, and then they ended up settling that case with their insurance company and pocketed put in their coffers hundreds of thousands of dollars for the harm to their reputation. And so when this film came out last year, What Haunts Us by Paige Tolmack, at a public screening in Charleston, the current headmaster showed up because he wanted to tell everybody how much he supported the victims and how sorry they were for what happened. And, and I wasn't gonna let him get away with it. So I took the mic from him and I told the audience what I just told you about them suing their insurance company and getting a bunch of money back. And I said, you don't even talk about, you're not, you don't have standing to talk about this until you give that money up. You give every penny of it up and either give it to victims or use it to send this film around the country to show every school in the country. You've got to do something with that money other than keep it in your pockets. At the same time he was publicly professing that he was the one who was spreading this vile lie about one of the heroes. He actually said that one of the heroes of this story spit on somebody from the school during one of the trials. Now that's not just a false statement, that's a vile. That's the kind of thing you say about somebody when you wanna attack them as a person. And that's what he was saying privately while he was making these public proclamations. So then they entered into some negotiations with a group of alums um, who were outraged by this movie when they found out the real story. So the school eventually agreed to give up some of the money, but not all of the money. And they did put some policies and oversight and procedures in place that I'm sure is very good, but they still kept some of the money. And to me, that is still an outrage that they have a single penny of that. I didn't care if it was $5 or $5 million, they needed to give up every penny of that money because they actually profited off of, what they did to these boys. 
Well, thankfully, there are advocates like you out there, Dave, that are continuing to fight for victims long after this has gone on. Um, in, in your experience, is the rate, the, the, the suicide rates among male survivors higher than female survivors? I, I, I'm not competent to address that broadly but let me tell you about this case in particular okay we were able to identify approximately 15 boys who committed suicide during eddie fisher's tenure at the school now we could not prove that every one of them committed suicide because of eddie fisher but part of this story and this is important is the culture of downtown charleston it's very insular that there's an old saying in charleston that Charleston is one of only two places on earth, uh, Boston being the other, that is at sea level, but they look down on the rest of the world. Um, there is this mentality in downtown Charleston, especially the Port of God crowd, that they are so much better than all of the rest of us. And the children are expected to live up to that. And so part of that culture is you do not bring shame on the family name. And so when many of these boys were molested, the last thing in the world they were ever going to do was say anything about it because it would bring shame on the family name. That's what they were taught. We represented two different guys who were disowned by their families because they merely said, I was molested by Eddie Fisher. And so the pressure on these particular boys, I can't speak generally to the rates, but in one particular class, the class of 1979 at Porter Gout School, there were 49 boys. Six of them have committed suicide. And, and, and the, the horrible thing is, the suicides are continuing. There was one just a few years ago, a young man who struggled with uh, substance abuse his entire life, checked into a rehab facility for the, I don't know how many at the time, but he wasn't there very long and he checked himself out and took his own life. Um, and in fact, I, very personal to me, one of the heroes of this story I became very close to, very close to, after this litigation. And he took his own life. And that sent me personally into a tailspin for quite a while. The suicide rate at this school exceeds not only the general population, but it is, it is frightening how many children at this school have committed suicide. Yeah. And that's, I mean, gosh, for... For listeners, you know, if you're struggling at all, call our, our hotline, call the national hotline, the suicide prevention hotline. There is help out there that that phone might feel like it's 800 pounds, but please lift it up and call. Um, I couldn't are, agree more. Yeah. And, and, and look, I, it, it, the darkest you think it could possibly be, there is light out there. There really, really is. And there are a lot of people who will help. You just got to let them know you want the help. And that's, and that's the hope, right? That's the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel is that there are people there to help. We don't want this to continue. We want this to be brought to light. As disturbing as the story is, we want it to be brought to light so it doesn't keep happening and so people get that help. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Our, our mantra throughout this case, this case in particular, but sort of a credo that Greg Myers and I had was expose the arrogance and defeat it because Porter God worked overtime to try to convince the entire community that these boys were lying 
and that Myers and Flowers were a couple of grandstanding lawyers and they were just making this stuff up. And, and a lot of the community believed that until we had a public trial and then everything changed. Is that something that you can also then kind of look to for hope is that despite the best efforts of the institution and the long standing reputation stuff going on that the community really did finally believe and the tide has changed? Yes. I think people in Charleston no longer look at Porter Gab like they used to. And, and frankly, they shouldn't. Right. Um, but we had some inklings during the litigation. In fact, during the last trial, uh, while the jury was actually deliberating, Greg and I went to get lunch. And at a local cafe, there was a long line. And, uh, and, and one of the people got out of line and walked over to Greg and said, are you the guy suing Porter Gowd? And Greg looked at me and said, well, we are. And the guy said, I just want to shake your hand. And then every person in that line got out of line and formed a new line to shake our hands. It was one of the warmest feelings I ever had as a lawyer. But that told us that the community was paying attention and, and we knew that we were on the side of the angels when that happened, that everything the school had been saying, people finally realized was just not accurate. You gave me chills. You choked me up. That was, that, that gives you hope right there that we will listen. It does. And I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead, Dan. Oh no, that's no, that was it. Just that it gives you hope that we will listen to the victims. Well, and one thing I will say about hope um, that you, you made me think of was my experience has been if someone is out there afraid to come forward, thinking nobody will believe them. Um, my experience is generally when one person comes forward, it gives others courage. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. Eddie Fisher molested somewhere between 50 and 100 boys. But for decades, no one would come forward. But finally, when Gary Glover found the courage to come forward, a whole bunch of other young men said to themselves, and they testified to this, and I don't doubt this for a second. They said, I've got to support Gary because nobody will believe him. And they started coming out of the woodwork, um, literally from all over the country. Boys who were molested by Eddie Fisher started coming forward saying, Gary's telling the truth. And my experience is that victims, it is very important to them that the person who came forward first be believed. That's their motivation for coming forward. And the truth is they then have some cover. Once a Gary Glover comes forward, it gives cover to all the other victims of that particular perpetrator. And that changes the whole dynamic. It's no longer a he said, she said, or he said, he said case. It's he said versus they said. And that changes everything. And does that also explain why in these cases it may take years and it may take some kind of catalyst to finally that for that first survivor to come forward, that first victim to come forward and say, here it is. You know, so we need to believe people regardless of the time frame, I guess. Well, two things about that, Dan. Yes, is the answer to your question. We do need to believe them regardless of the time frame. But the other thing we need to do is make it easier for people to come forward. Mm. You know, as long as we allow priests to be moved around or coaches to be moved around or teachers to be moved around, it's harder for, for victims to come forward because 
there are institutions out there that have information about these sexual offenders that they're just keeping under wraps. Mm -hmm. I mean, Porter Gowd knew that Eddie Fisher was a pedophile and they were perfectly content to move him to two other schools in the Charleston area. And even when Gary came to the headmaster and said, he's still teaching at James Island High School, help me get him out of teaching. The principal was, uh, the headmaster was like, you know what, it's not my problem anymore. He's not our problem anymore. He was at our school a long time ago. We need a better sense of people wanting to stop this instead of reacting to it in a, in a way that's ridiculous, like blaming the victims. Mm -hmm. And your, your intro, the final line of your intro of the book, he liked this territory because his handlers here allowed him to become one of the worst lions of all. And that's exactly what you're describing. <clears throat> so we need, we need yeah, to Yeah, they forward. did. Uh, I mean, they didn't just look the other way, which is what most institutions do. They aggressively um, fought back against these victims. Um, and, and, and the headmaster who was the headmaster during the litigation, I will say that he had a change of heart when he realized the, the devastation that had been done in one of the weirdest twists in my career, we needed an expert witness to talk about sexual contact between teachers and students. And normally we'd go out and find an expert witness and pay him a bunch of money and they would give testimony. That's just how the system works. But one day I was reviewing this guy's deposition. His name was Gordon Bondurant. When I was reviewing his deposition, I thought, you know what? This guy will say everything we need him to say. So we actually named Porter Gowd's headmaster as our expert witness on the safety of children. Wow. He was not at the school when Eddie Fisher was there. But he, he seemed to be a really decent guy. Now, he was the one who put out the press release and did some other things, let the lawyers run amok. Yeah. But I had a sense that he was a decent guy. And sure enough, right before we tried the case, he retired. And so when we called him as our expert witness, he didn't even know we were doing it. And the junior lawyer defending the school had not told her boss. So her boss was completely blindsided when we offered him as our expert witness. And just as a funny moment, he, he objected and said, we can't use him as an expert without paying him. And so I said, okay, how much does he want? I'll pay him. And it actually was a sort of a light moment. In the, but, but the witness, Gordon Bondurant, when he saw what we were doing, he actually got behind it because he had been muzzled by these lawyers. The school had blamed the victims. The school had blamed the parents. The school had done everything wrong. And Bondurant didn't like that, but they would not let him say, I don't agree with that. So when we got to the trial and he was no longer the headmaster, I gave him the opportunity to say that. And he did. And he really, he told the truth, which is what they all should have done all along. Yeah. Amen. Well, David, thank you for uh, bringing this book to our attention here at DASIS and at I'm Not in an Abusive Relationship. Thank you for the work you've done. Uh, listeners, check out uh, Taming the Lion Tamers. We'll have a link in the show notes for you. Uh, any final thoughts you want to share with listeners, David? Um, thanks, for, thanks for having me, Dan. But what I'm trying to get out to the world now is instead of focusing on the lions, let's focus on the lion tamers. Let's start putting principals, superintendents, bishops. Once we put one of them in jail, so far as I know, not a single bishop in the Catholic Church has ever gone to prison for moving priests around. But if we put one in jail, or if we put one principal in jail for doing that, for endangering children, that's a paradigm changer. And that's how we can protect kids. 
Very good. David, thank you again for for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasasmi.org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it, all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.